This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is overcoming racism through kindness, unity, and the Savior. In the first half, Ryan Gabriel speaks on healing racism through Jesus Christ. Then in the second half, Elder Joseph B. Worthlin and Sister Sharon Eubank give their addresses, The Virtue of Kindness, and By Union of Feeling We Obtain Power with God. In the spring of 2018, I was fortunate enough, along with a group of faculty and administrative colleagues here at BYU, to travel with a group of students to the southern United States to visit a number of famous civil rights sites. One of these sites was the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. The 16th Street Baptist Church was a hub of civil rights activity in the 1950s and 60s. It was a meeting place for the civil rights leaders such as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth. Parishioners of the church marched through the streets of Birmingham with the hope that their action would integrate a deeply divided city. Outside of the church rests a small plaque that memorializes the death of four young girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair. On September 15, 1963, in an attempt to harm and intimidate the local black community, four white supremacists planted approximately 15 sticks of dynamite attached to a timing device under the stairs of this holy house. The bomb exploded, killing these four blessed girls. As I stood outside the red brick church, tears welled up in my eyes. I mourned the loss of those four young girls. Today, I feel reverence for the Christian courage of their community to continue to endure through tragedy and press on for civil rights in the face of immense danger. Latter-day Saints, too, have suffered from violent mobs. For instance, on October 30th, 1838, a collection of Latter-day Saint families was attacked at Hans Mill in Missouri by an unauthorized militia. In this massacre, many of the Latter-day Saint men headed to the blacksmith shop to mount a defense. However, the militia members could easily fire into the building because of large gaps in the walls. Eventually, the militia members entered the structure. They found three innocent young boys, Sardius Smith, Alma Smith, and Charles Merrick, whom they shot and killed. Many of us are aware of the tragedy of Hans Mill that was caused by religious prejudice, but we may have little to no knowledge, however, of events like the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that are motivated by racial prejudice. Expanding our understanding of the suffering of others can awaken charity within us. Our hearts can connect in solidarity over our shared experience, striving for life and to have it more abundantly. By contemplating challenging historical moments through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we will increase our appreciation of the beautiful healing power of the Prince of Peace. Similarly, we will uncover clues from the life of and principles taught by our Savior on how to faithfully fulfill the charge that President Russell M. Nelson has given us to lead out in abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice. In the history of the United States, there is much to be admired 
far more than I could recount if I had all week to speak with you. One example of this praiseworthy history is the drafting of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. These documents have given us a strong foundation. And as Elder Quentin L. Cook stated in University Conference in August of 2020, have blessed this country and protected people of all faiths. Coupled with this honorable history of our nation, there are, unfortunately, events such as the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church that have marked our nation's history, where acts of racial injustice have destroyed families, their communities, and hindered hopes for unity and belonging. To illustrate, between 1830 and 1850, Cherokee, Muscogee, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw nations in the United States were displaced from their ancestral lands. In this forced migration known as the Trail of Tears, they encountered starvation, exposure, disease, and death. During the Great Depression, hundreds of thousands of United States citizens with Mexican heritage were forcefully expelled from or coerced to leave the country. Throughout World War II, more than 100,000 innocent Japanese Americans were incarcerated in internment camps. Certainly, learning of events like these can draw out deep compassion for the families who experience such suffering and racially motivated injustice. Instances of racial injustice extend well beyond these in the history of the United States, each of which are worthy of genuine consideration. In my research, I mainly focus on how acts of racial injustice have affected the African-American community. The most well-known example of racial injustice traces back to what some call America's original sin, slavery. The institution of slavery was introduced to the United States in the 1600s, where roughly 12.3 million Africans were trafficked to the Americas. Enormous wealth was generated for those in the slave industry through the unjust toil of Africans, men, women, and children. Daily life of enslaved Africans was punctuated by horrendous abuse. In some instances, they were branded with hot irons on the chest or face. Slaves were whipped, forced to wear iron masks, placed in the stocks, sexually assaulted, and subjected to other forms of torture. Besides torture, enslaved Africans' agency was severely limited by a set of laws called slave codes. It was, for example, illegal for an enslaved person to own property, trade goods, leave an enslaver's property without permission, learn to read and write, speak their native language, or marry. Black families had no rights under the law, which meant that children were ripped from the gentle embrace of their parents, and wives were sold never to lovingly look into their husband's eyes again. Slavery was and is a sin against the family. Another form of racial injustice called convict leasing was perpetuated upon African Americans after the Civil War. Lasting until the early 1940s, convict leasing was a system of legal slavery where southern states leased prisoners to private companies such as mines and farms. The legal basis of convict leasing was found in the 13th Amendment of the Constitution, which prohibited slavery and involuntary servitude, but exempted those convicted of a crime. To take advantage of this amendment, southern states passed black coats. These laws pertained only to African Americans and subjected them to criminal prosecution for the most trivial of offenses. 
acts which many of us have committed before, such as standing around without an apparent purpose or breaking curfew. These laws effectively place black people, including children, under a new form of slavery where they encountered terrifying work conditions that frequently ended in death. Besides convict leasing, the lynching of black people was common after the Civil War. From 1877 to 1950, there were roughly 4,400 documented lynchings, consisting largely of African Americans. Lynchings were brutal events of public torture and mutilation that were known to draw crowds ranging in the thousands. Lynchings were predominantly done by white citizens to terrorize black communities into a state of fear and servitude. And lynching events were often permitted by state and federal officials. To illustrate the savage injustice of lynching, let us turn to Mary Turner. In 1918, Mrs. Turner, a black woman who was eight months pregnant, was lynched at Folsom's Bridge in Georgia by a mob of white men. The reasoning given by the mob for the lynching of Mrs. Turner is that she spoke out against the lynching of her husband. It is exceedingly painful to imagine this type of treatment toward our sisters and brothers. We can find peace, however, in the fact that our Savior knows and has wholly felt the exact pain of each African slave, black children who died in dark mines, Mary Turner full with child, hanging in agony from Folsom's Bridge, and little Sardius, Alma and Charles at Hans Mill. He suffered their experiences so that they might come under his tender care. This sublime characteristic of the Redeemer is highlighted by the prophet Alma, who states that Jesus Christ will take upon him death, that he may loose the bands of death which bind his people, and we will take upon him their infirmities, that his bowels may be filled with mercy according to the flesh, that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities. Knowledge that Christ suffers with us can provide solace to our hearts and minds when reflecting on the injustices done to our brothers and sisters. The development of our modern conception of race, where groups are defined by their physical features, was established through a complex history of colonialism, emerging economic systems and nations, along with early misguided attempts to understand human behavioral differences through science. For instance, Scientists in the 18th century began to categorize the physical world, such as plants and animals. This extended to groups of individuals with similar physical traits. Eventually, this line of thinking led to now debunked systems of racial categorization that attempted to attribute intelligence and behavioral traits to the physical features of various racial groups. Early scientists who created racial categories conceived that whites were naturally superior which contributed to justifying the evils of African slavery and subsequent systems of racial oppression in America. In his recent devotional, Alan H. Oaks, first counselor in the first presidency, defined racism as involving the idea that one's race is superior to others and has the right to rule over them. In other words, racism is an idea that a racial hierarchy exists where certain groups are superior to others. In the context of the United States, the racial hierarchy places whites at the top and African Americans and other people of color at the bottom. The justification for the racial hierarchy in the early history of the United States happened by numerous means. 
In addition to the misguided scientific justifications for racial differences I mentioned, distorted interpretations of Holy Scripture were used to argue that individuals with African ancestry were destined for servitude or were somehow lesser children of God. Rationalizations such as these absolved individuals from the dominant group from their racist thoughts and actions and policies that they developed to maintain their ruling position. Consequently, many who had social advantages because of their race possessed the view that their advantages and society's poor treatment of darker-skinned groups was approved by nature and by God. This perspective imbued them with the belief that their position at the top of the racial hierarchy was right and not racist, leading some to think that the oppression of African Americans was warranted. Case in point, In 1955, on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white man. Rosa Parks was arrested. During that time, African Americans were relegated to sit at the back of the bus. If the bus was full and a white person entered and wanted to sit, an African American individual would have to stand. Shortly after her arrest, black church leaders, exemplifying wisdom and bravery, started a boycott of the bus system to encourage more just public transportation policies. Scores of individuals in the black community chose to walk and carpool instead of riding the bus. This action had major economic consequences on the bus line because African Americans represented 75% of their customers. In response to the collective action of the black community, two leaders of the boycott, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Reverend Ralph Abernathy, had their homes firebombed. A white Lutheran reverend named Robert Gretz, who served a black congregation in Montgomery and who strongly supported the bus boycott, also had his home firebombed. Moreover, the city sued Martin Luther King Jr. and 89 others in state court on the grounds that it was illegal to boycott the busing system. Dr. King was found guilty. Shortly after his guilty verdict in 1956, 381 days after the start of the boycott, the United States Supreme Court upheld the district court's ruling that Alabama's racial segregation laws for buses were unconstitutional. The next day, Rosa Parks rode an integrated bus. It took faith for boycotters to endure these daily indignities and to walk resolutely in peaceful Christian protest and to still find joy. I imagine some of these individuals who were deeply Christian, who stood for what was right, both black and white, reflected in moments of peaceful solitude on the Savior's words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These blessed words likely comforted their souls as they do mine. They give hope for those that hunger for a more just world. In these words, Christ promises glorious promises to those who yearn for peaceful communities. He is also keenly aware of the persecution and resistance that will surely come to those who labor to build fairer societies.
And with that, he imparts a vision of hope and magnificent spiritual abundance for those devoted to such a cause. To use our own Latter-day Saint phrasing, many of these individuals, black and white, who strove for fairer societies, mourned with those that mourned, provided comfort to those who stood in need of comfort, and they stood as witnesses of God even until death. The most famous martyr of the freedom cause was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but there were other, less well-known individuals who died to extend greater liberty to African Americans, and thereby all Americans. For example, James Reeb was a white minister from Boston who was killed by a white mob in Selma. Viola Luuzo was a white housewife and mother from Detroit who drove from Selma to ferry voting rights marchers between Selma and Montgomery. She was tragically shot and killed by a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Surely, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Because of the humble and holy sacrifices of previous generations of all races and ethnicities, we have made strides in the United States concerning racial equality. As an example, in the recently elected 117th U.S. Congress is the most diverse in our country's history, where around a quarter of voting members are racial and ethnic minorities. In spite of the progress we have made, racism remains a destructive force in our society. Racism is enticing because it provides individuals a feeling of pride, a feeling of pride that is frequently justified by continued notions of biological superiority, misinterpretations of scripture, and myopic knowledge of the accomplishments of various racial and ethnic groups. The adversary uses pride, intrinsic to racism, to attempt to distort a foundational tenet of the plan of salvation, that we are all equal spirit children of heavenly parents. He twists this foundational tenet with racism to falsely claim that there are racial groups that are inherently different and that that certain racial groups are better than others. Despite the relative simplicity of this strategy, it can be highly effective. Undoubtedly, the poisonous perfume of pride can lure innocent individuals who are searching for a sense of purpose and destiny to the philosophy of racial supremacy. However, the fruit of the philosophy of racial supremacy is hatred. Hatred towards one's brothers and sisters, which is ultimately hatred toward God. Our church has made it clear that this way of thinking does not befit a disciple of Christ. For instance, in 2017, following a violent white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, the church released the following statement, quote, White supremacist attitudes are morally wrong and sinful, and we condemn them. Church members who promote or pursue a white culture or white supremacy agenda are not in harmony with the teachings of the church, end quote. Without question, it is a sin to believe that the color of one's skin or cultural heritage makes one inherently better than another. Pride as it relates to race and racism can manifest with great subtlety, making it difficult to root out. As I mentioned before, being white is not simply another racial category. In our society, white individuals are at the top of the racial hierarchy, making them the default group that other racial groups are compared against. Because of this, it is not surprising that some major skincare companies sell skin lightening lotion specifically targeted to people of color. These products imply that looking lighter and wider is better. The root of this scheme is found in the adversary. In contrast, I invite you to not only come 
to know but to feel that you are a child of loving heavenly parents who created you to look just as you do. As President Russell M. Nelson stated, each of us has a divine potential because each is a child of God. Each is equal in his eyes. God does not love one race more than another. Hence, no matter what the world tells us, there is no need for us to look like anyone else, for us to be worthy of love and respect. Our skin tones are as they should be, and they are beautiful. Although pride is highly effective at drawing individuals to racism and justifying its application, greed often motivates it. The adversary offers the destructive forces of racism as a dangerous tool to justify greed. Greed that manifests in the oppression of others for material gain, power, and control. Greed as it relates to racism toward African Americans can be seen with stark clarity in the history of slavery that I outlined earlier, but also in the modern day. Researchers studying the Great Recession found that predatory lending agencies, all for the sake of profit, targeted predominantly black communities and channeled them into high-cost, high-risk mortgage loans. This left black families vulnerable to default on their loans, have their homes repossessed, and lose much of their wealth. In the end, these two unholy traits, pride and greed, are mutually supportive and endow racism with colossal destructive force. To counter racism and the pride and greed that are associated with it, the King of Kings invites us in love and magnanimity to come unto me, all ye ends of the earth, buy milk and honey, without money and without price. The Savior invites all of us to share in his abundant gifts of love and redemption, where racial and economic status are inconsequential, where each of us can partake of his nourishing word, and where we are inherently equal. Jesus Christ taught us that we too should be loving and generous when asked, Which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. These powerful statements by the Savior clearly identifies who we should love, God and each other, and how much with all that we have. Yet the adversary attempts to distort the great commandment through pernicious forms of racism. He attempts to convince us that if we want a world where race is no longer a contributing factor to how various groups are treated, then we need to stop focusing on race. This perspective might work if we lived in an ideal society without a history of slavery, convict leasing, and lynching. Nevertheless, we live in a fallen world, a world that has historical sins that reverberate into today. For example, social scientists have observed that historical slave concentrations in the southern United States are related to contemporary patterns of racial inequality in that same region of the country. Therefore, to pretend that race is unimportant by saying, I don't see race, or to falsely diminish the impacts of racism on the lives of Heavenly Father's children does nothing to stop racism that occurs in education and the criminal justice system and in housing and employment, all of which affect the opportunities of families and have their roots in a past beset by deep and far-reaching racial injustice. To pretend race is not important does not show compassion for the experiences of others who, 
by virtue of their experiences with racism, know that it is. Christ himself asks us to remember and know his suffering, to touch the scars on his hands and feet. He does not ask us to deny another's pain, but to know it and to touch it. To deny the genuine pain of another is to deny the very suffering Christ felt for them, privately in the Garden of Gethsemane and publicly upon the cross of Calvary. It is easy and largely innocent to attempt to not see race with the hope that it will help us treat individuals fairly and view them as children of God, full of divine potential. Recognizing an individual's divine identity is holy, but denying their racial identity leads to negative consequences. Of course, the goal remains to create a society where individuals are judged by the content of their character. But we cannot get there by ignoring the color of their skin. Attempting to not see race masks from our view the many ways that individuals are given or denied opportunities in society solely because of their race. For example, researchers have sent fictitious resumes to help wanted ads where the resumes were randomly assigned to individuals with African-American sounding names like Rashid or Jamal and white sounding names like Brett or Todd, only to observe that resumes with white sounding names are more likely to receive a callback. Consequently, attempting to not see race lessens our ability to see the distinctive challenges of our sisters and brothers and limits our capacity to serve them in ways that are most beneficial. What are we to do then? How are we to move toward a Zion community where the love of God dwells within our hearts? We can focus on the great commandment. One way to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind is to express gratitude for the abundance of gifts he has provided us. The expression of gratitude, which is a form of love, can be more than mere mental thought, but a profound, soul-enriching experience where we concentrate on feeling thankfulness in our hearts and allowing that feeling to emanate throughout our entire beings. Gratitude that is felt is gratitude that transforms. And given that the root of racism is often justified by pride and motivated by greed, feeling expansive gratitude for the gifts that we receive from God can provide us a humble understanding that we are totally reliant upon Him for all that we have, both temporal and spiritual, and that no one is greater than another. For instance, we can be full of gratitude toward God for the astounding diversity of people, their distinctive talents and gifts, and their unique cultural histories, each of which contributes to the mosaic that is the human family. We can appreciate that the Lord invites all to come unto him and partake of his goodness, and he denieth none that come unto him black and white, bond and free, male and female, and he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. We can praise God for commanding us to forgive all, including those who committed acts of racial violence in the past and those who continue to espouse racist rhetoric today. Forgiveness for these individuals is fostered by understanding that many of them, both past and present, have followed the flawed traditions of their fathers, flaws that were nurtured by the author of all sin, the adversary. To be clear, forgiving these individuals does not mean we condone such behavior. Indeed, we cannot rob justice. Forgiveness means that we see these individuals as children of God, 
that our hearts are loving and pure toward them. Also, in our silent prayers, we can give gratitude for our brave brothers and sisters who sacrificed their lives so that we might live in a more racially just society. With the second component of the Great Commandment, we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. If we are to love our neighbors as ourselves, we are to recognize their needs, their pains, their hopes and dreams. We are helped by knowing their cultural heritage, but if we had not had the privilege of learning their cultural history, we can rest assured that their people have experienced wonderful triumphs and encountered profound suffering. This way of viewing others leads us to see them as full, dynamic, and real as ourselves. We can support this perspective through a holy testimony, born through study and prayer, that our spirits consist of the same divine material coming from the same heavenly parents. Achieving the second commandment also takes thoughtful questioning of our assumptions about those that look different from us. For instance, do you believe that the main reason economic poverty is higher in some racial and ethnic groups compared to others, to the idea that those economically poor groups do not value hard work? If so, I humbly invite you to notice where that line of thinking takes you. It might lead you to feel that the poor in these other groups are not worthy of service because you perceive that they solely brought their economic condition upon themselves. Will you find joy in that belief? Will it lead you to love your neighbor as yourself? Does that perspective embody the commandment of the Lord that we love one another as I have loved you? We can also look to Christ as the paragon for how to love our neighbors. Through the atonement, he selflessly took upon himself the sins, transgressions, pains, and sorrows of his sisters and brothers. We can work to follow his sublime example to help heal racism within our communities and to build belonging. To help illustrate this, I will adapt an analogy from Pulitzer Prize-winning author Isabel Wilkerson. She states that the relationship we have with social problems is similar to individuals who inherit an old home. The home is on beautiful grounds and has a sturdy foundation, but it has warped walls, rusted pipes, and faulty wiring. Despite not being originally responsible for these problems, we are the inherited owners of what is right and wrong with the home. Similarly, individuals can rightly assert that they had nothing to do with the sins of the past, such as slavery and lynching. Yet we are living in the legacies of past generations. Fortunately, we have been blessed with the power to act and change our world. Thus, in this very moment, we can decide to act in a way that is truly charitable. As representatives of Christ, we can work hard to heal the painful legacies of racism that we inherited, legacies that manifest in new and pernicious ways. Taking this action will help us alleviate the suffering of others. This is what the Savior did for each and every one of us. He took upon himself sin for which he was not responsible. He did so because he loves us. We can do so because we love him. My dear sisters and brothers, we have all thought, spoken, or behaved in a prejudiced manner at some point in our lives. The good news is that we can turn to the fountain of living waters, Jesus Christ and his atonement, for our healing and redemption. His death and triumphant resurrection 
not only provides us the ability to reconcile our relationship with Heavenly Father, but to reconcile our relationship with each other. We can apologize when we have hurt someone, ask for forgiveness from God, and endeavor every day to love more fully and completely by improving our capacity to personify the great commandment. Through applying the atonement personally, with the intention to live the great commandment, we are collectively contributing to the creation of Zion, a community of the pure in heart. We can also develop this united Zion community by study and by faith. We can learn about cultures that are different from our own. For instance, we can read works from writers that we might not normally engage with, such as Maya Angelou, who received over 50 honorary degrees, and Toni Morrison, who won the Nobel Prize in Literature and was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. We might study the amazing life of Frederick Douglass and the powerful women who contributed to civil rights, such as Ida B. Wells and Fannie Lou Hamer. We can develop authentic, loving friendships with individuals of different races, ethnicities, and backgrounds where we humbly listen and learn from their real-life experiences. In building friendships across lines of difference, it is key to recognize our commonalities. Uniting around our commonalities will go a long way in building bridges of cooperation and lasting friendship. We might offer consistent and heartfelt prayers to have charity for those whose cultural histories are different from ours in His own way and through His infinite intelligence. Heavenly Father will answer our prayers to be filled with charity. It is my earnest prayer that each of us might have hearts abounding with love for God and for each other, and I do so in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is overcoming racism through kindness, unity, and the Savior. We've just heard from Brian Gabriel with Healing Racism Through Jesus Christ. After the break, we'll return with Elder Joseph B. Worthlin. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is overcoming racism through kindness, unity, and the Savior. And now we'll hear from Elder Joseph B. Worthlin. Many years ago, when I was called as a bishop, I had a desire for the bishopric to visit those who are less active in the Church and see if there's anything we could do to bring the blessings of the gospel into their lives. One day we visited a man in his fifties who was a respected mechanic. He told me the last time he had been to church was when he was a young boy. Something had happened that day. He had been acting up in class and was being noisier than he should when his teacher became angry, pulled him out of class, and told him not to come back. He never did. It is remarkable to me that an unkind word spoken more than four decades earlier could have such a profound effect, but it had. And as a consequence, this man had never returned to church, neither had his wife or children. I apologized to him and expressed my sorrow that he had been treated that way. I told him how unfortunate it was that one word spoken in haste 
and so long ago could have the effect of excluding his family from the blessings that come from church activity. After 40 years, I told him it's time the church made things right. I did my best to do so. I reassured him that he was welcome and needed. I rejoiced when this man and his family eventually returned to church and became strong and faithful members. In particular, this good brother became an effective home teacher because he understood how something as small as an unkind word could have consequences that extend throughout a lifetime and perhaps beyond. Kindness is the essence of greatness and the fundamental characteristic of the the noblest men and women I have known. Kindness is a passport that opens doors and fashions friends. It softens hearts and molds relationships that can last lifetimes. Kind words not only lift our spirits in the moment they are given, but they can linger with us over the years. One day when I was in college, a man seven years my senior congratulated me on my performance in a football game. He not only praised how well I had done in the game, but he had noticed that I had showed good sportsmanship. Even though this conversation happened more than 60 years ago, and even though it's highly unlikely the person who complimented me has any recollection of this conversation, I still remember the kind words spoken to me that day by Gordon B. Hinckley, who later became president of the Church. The attributes of thoughtfulness and kindness are inseparably linked with President Hinckley. When my father passed away in 1963, President Hinckley was the first person to come to our home. I'll never forget his kindness. He gave my mother a blessing and, among other things, promised her that she had much to look forward to and that life would be sweet for her. These words have brought comfort to her and to me, and I'll never forget his kindness. Kindness is the essence of a celestial life. Kindness is how a Christ-like person treats another. Kindness should be permanent in all of our words and actions at work, at school, at church, and especially in our homes. Jesus, our Savior, was the epitome of kindness and compassion. He healed the sick. He spent much of his time ministering to the one or many. He spoke compassionately to the Sumerian woman who has looked down upon many. He instructed his disciples to allow the little children to come unto me. He was kind to all who had sinned and condemning only the sin, not the sinner. He kindly allowed thousands of Nephites to come forward and feel the nail prints in his hands and feet. Yet his greatest act of kindness was found in his atoning sacrifice, thus freeing all from the effects of death and all from the effects of sin on conditions of repentance. The Prophet Joseph Smith exemplified kindness in his life to everyone, old and young. One child who benefited from the Prophet's kindness remembered, My older brother and I were going to school near to the building which was known as Joseph's Brick Store. It had been raining the previous day, causing the ground to be very muddy, especially along that street. My brother Wallace and I got both feet in the mud and could not get out. And, of course, childlike, we began to cry, for we thought we would have to stay there. But looking up, I beheld the loving friend of children, the Prophet Joseph Smith, coming to us. He soon had us on higher ground. Then he stooped down and cleaned the mud from our little heavy-laden shoes, 
took his handkerchief from his pocket and wiped our tear-strained faces. He spoke kind and cheering words to us and sent us on our way to school rejoicing. There is no substitute for kindness in the home. This lesson I learned from my father. He always listened to my mother's advice. As a result, he was a better, wiser, and kinder man. I have tried to follow my father's example and listen to my wife's point of view. I value her opinion. For example, when my wife begins a sentence with the words, I should think you would, I instantly pay attention and begin searching my mind for something I may have done wrong. Oftentimes, before my wife has finished her sentence, I have already planned out in my mind a magnificent apology. (laughs) In truth, my wife is a model of kindness, gentleness, and compassion, and her insight, counsel, and support have been invaluable to me. Because of her, I, too, am a wiser and kinder person. The things you say, the tone of your voice, the anger or calm of your words, these things are noticed by your children and by others. They see and learn both the kind as as well as the unkind things we say or do. Nothing exposes our true selves more than how we treat one another in the home. I often wonder why some feel they must be critical of others. It gets in their blood, I suppose, and it becomes so natural they often don't even think about it. They seem to criticize everyone the way Sister Jones leads the music, the way Brother Smith teaches a lesson or plants his garden. Even when we think we're doing no harm by our critical remarks, consequences often follow. I'm reminded of a boy who handed a donation envelope to his bishop and told him it was for him. The bishop, using this as a teaching moment, explained to the boy that he should mark on the donation slip whether it was for tithing, fast offerings, or for something else. The boy insisted the money was for the bishop himself. When the bishop asked why, the boy replied, Because my father says, You're one of the poorest bishops we've ever had. The Church is not a place where perfect people gather to say perfect things or have perfect thoughts or have perfect feelings. The Church is a place where imperfect people gather to provide encouragement, support, and service to each other as we press on in our journey to return to our Heavenly Father. Each one of us will travel a different road during this life. Each progresses at a different rate. Temptations that trouble your brother may not challenge you at all. Strengths that you possess may seem impossible to another. Never look down on those who are less perfect than you. Don't be upset because someone can't sow as well as you, can't throw as well as you. We're all children of our Heavenly Father, and we're here with the same purpose, to learn to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. One way you can measure your value in the kingdom of God is to ask, How am I doing in helping others to reach their potential? Do I support others in the Church, or do I criticize them? If you are criticizing members of the Church, you are weakening the Church. If you are building others, you are building the kingdom of God. As Heavenly Father is kind, we also should be kind to others. Elder James E. Talmadge, a man who is remembered for his doctrinal teachings, 
showed great kindness to a neighbor family in distress. They were complete strangers to him before he was an apostle. As a young father, he became aware of great sufferings at the neighbor's home, whose large family was stricken with dreaded diphtheria. He did not care that they were not members of the Church. His kindness and charity moved him to act. The Relief Society was desperately trying to find people to help, but no one would because of the contagious nature of the disease. When he arrived, James found one toddler already dead and two others who were in agony from the disease with the baby of the family showing other symptoms. He immediately went to work cleaning the untidy house, preparing the young body for burial, cleaning and providing for the other sick children, spending the entire day doing so. He came back the next morning to find one more of the children died that night. He wrote in his journal, The little girl was still suffering terribly. She clung to my neck, oftentimes coughing germs upon my face and clothing, yet I could not put her from me. During the half hour immediately preceding her death, I walked the floor with a little child in my arms. She died in agony at 10.10 a.m. So the three children have departed all within the space of 24 hours. He then assisted the family with the burial arrangements and spoke at the graveside services. This he did all for a family of strangers. What a great example of Christ-like kindness. When we're all filled with kindness, we're not judgmental. The Savior taught, Judge not, that ye not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. He also taught, With what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. But you ask, what if people are rude? Love them. If they are obnoxious, love them. But what if they offend? Surely I must do something then. Love them. Wayward, the answer is the same. Be kind. Love them. Why? In the scriptures, Jude taught and some have compassion, making a difference. Who can tell what far-reaching impact we can have if we are only kind? My brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ transcends mortality. Our work here is but a shadow of greater and unimaginable things to come. The heavens opened to the prophet Joseph Smith. He saw the living God and His Son, Jesus Christ. In our day, a prophet, President Gordon B. Hinckley, walks the earth and provides direction for our time. As our Heavenly Father loves us, we also should love His children. May we be models of kindness, and may we ever live up to the words of the Savior. But this shall all men know, that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Of these truths I bear witness in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You're listening to Finding Center. We've just heard from Elder Joseph B. Worthlin, and now we'll hear from Sister Sharon Eubank with her address, By Union of Feeling We Obtain Power with God. Gordon's mother told him if he would finish his chores, she would make him a pie, his favorite kind just for him. So Gordon went to work on getting those chores done, and his mother rolled out the pie. His older sister Kathy came into the house with a friend. 
She saw the pie, and she asked if she and her friend could have a slice. No, Gordon said. It's my pie. Mom baked it for me, and I had to earn it. Kathy snapped at her little brother. He was so self-centered and ungenerous. How could he keep this all to himself? Hours later, when Kathy opened the car door to take her friend home, there on the seat were two napkins folded nicely, two forks set on top, and two wide pieces of pie on plates. Kathy told this story at Gordon's funeral to show that he was willing to change and show kindness to those who didn't always deserve it. In 1842, the saints were working hard to build the Nauvoo Temple. After the founding of the Relief Society in March, the Prophet Joseph often came to their meetings to prepare them for the unifying covenants that they would soon be making in the temple. On June 9th, the Prophet said he was going to preach mercy. Supposing that Jesus Christ and the angels should object to us on frivolous things, what would become of us? We must be merciful and overlook small things. President Smith continued, It grieves me that there is no fuller fellowship. If one member suffer, all feel it. By union of feeling, we obtain power with God. That small sentence struck me like lightning. By union of feeling, we obtain power with God. This world isn't what I want it to be. There are many things that I want to influence and make better. And frankly, there's a lot of opposition to what I hope for. And sometimes I feel powerless. Lately, I've been asking myself searching questions. How can I understand people around me better? How will I create that union of feeling when everybody's so different? What power from God might I access if I'm just a little bit more unified with others? From my soul-searching, I have three suggestions, and maybe they'll help you, too. The first one is have mercy. Jacob 2.17 reads, Think of your brothers and sisters like unto yourselves, and be familiar with all and free with your substance, that they may be rich like unto you. Let's replace the word substance with mercy. Be free with your mercy, that they may be rich like unto you. We often think of substance in terms of food or money. But perhaps what we all need more of in our ministering is mercy. My own Relief Society president recently said, The thing I promise you is that I will keep your name safe. I will see you for who you are at your best. I will never say anything about you that is unkind, that's not going to lift you. I ask you to do the same for me because I'm terrified, frankly, of letting you down. Joseph Smith told the sisters on that June day in 1842, When persons manifest the least kindness and love to me, oh, what power it has over my mind. The nearer we get to our Heavenly Father, the more we are disposed to look with compassion on perishing souls. We feel that we want to take them upon our shoulders and cast their sins behind our back. My talk is intended for all this society. If you would have God have mercy on you, have mercy on one another. Now, this was counsel specifically to the Relief Society. So let's not judge each other. Let's not let our words bite. Let's keep each other's names safe and give the gift of mercy. The second thing, make your boat swing. In 1936, an obscure rowing team from the University of Washington traveled to Germany to participate in the Olympic Games. It was the depths of the Great Depression, and these were working-class boys whose small mining and lumber towns donated little bits of money so they could travel to Berlin. Every aspect of the competition seemed stacked against them. But something happened in the race. In the rowing world, they call it swing. Listen to this description that's based on the book, The Boys in the Boat. There's a thing that sometimes happens that is hard to achieve and hard to define. It's called swing. 
It happens only when all are rowing in such perfect unison that not a single action is out of sync. Rowers must rein in their fierce independence and at the same time hold true to their individual capabilities. Races are not won by clones. Good crews are good blends. Someone to lead the charge. Someone to hold something in reserve. Someone to fight the fight. Someone to make peace. No rower is more valuable than another. All are assets to the boat. But if they are to row well together, each must adjust to the needs and capabilities of the others. The shorter-armed person reaching a little farther. The longer-armed person pulling in just a bit. Differences can be turned to advantage instead of disadvantage. Only then will it feel as if the boat is moving on its own. Only then does pain entirely give way to exultation. Good swing feels like poetry. Against towering obstacles, this team found perfect swing and won. The Olympic gold was exhilarating, but the unity that each rower experienced that day was a holy moment that stayed with them their whole lives. The third thing, clear away the bad as fast as the good can grow. In the beautiful allegory in Jacob 5, the Lord of the vineyard planted a good tree in good ground, but it became corrupted over time and brought forth wild fruit. The Lord of the vineyard says eight times, It grieveth me to lose this tree. The servant says to the Lord of the vineyard, Spare the tree a little longer. And the Lord said, Yea, I will spare it a little longer. And then comes instruction that can be applied to all of us trying to dig about and find good fruit in our own little vineyards. Ye shall clear away the bad according as the good shall grow. Unity doesn't magically happen. It takes work. It's messy. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. And it happens gradually when we clear away the bad as fast as the good can grow. We're never alone in our efforts to create unity. Jacob 5 continues, The servants did go and labor with their mites, and the Lord of the vineyard labored also with them. Each of us is going to have deeply wounding experiences, things that should never happen. Each of us will also at various times allow pride and loftiness to corrupt the fruit we bear. Jesus Christ is our Savior in all things. His power reaches to the very bottom and is reliably there for us when we call on Him. We all beg for mercy for our sins and failures. He freely gives it. He asks us if we can give that same mercy and understanding to each other. Jesus put it bluntly, Be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. But if we are one, if we can spare a piece of our pie or fit our individual talents so that the boat can swing in perfect unison, then we are his, and he will help clear away the bad as fast as the good does grow. We may not yet be where we want to be, and we are not now where we will be. I believe the change we seek in ourselves and in the groups we belong to will come less by activism and more by actively trying every day to understand one another. Why? We're building Zion, a people of one heart and one mind. As covenant women, we have broad influence. That influence is applied in everyday moments when we're studying with a friend or putting little kids to bed or talking to a seatmate on the bus or preparing a presentation with a colleague. We have power to remove prejudice and build unity. Relief Society and young women aren't just classes. They can also be unforgettable experiences where very different women all get in the same boat and row until we find our swing. I offer this invitation. Be part of a collective force that changes the world for good. Our covenantal assignment is to minister, 
to lift up the hands that hang down, to put struggling people on our backs or in our arms and carry them. It isn't complicated to know what to do, but it often goes against our selfish interests, and we have to try. The women of this church have unlimited potential to change society. I have full spiritual confidence that as we seek union of feeling, we will call down the power of God to make our efforts whole. When the Church commemorated the 1978 revelation on priesthood, President Russell M. Nelson extended a powerful prophetic blessing. It is my prayer, he said, and blessing that I leave upon all who are listening, that we may overcome any burdens of prejudice and walk uprightly with God and with one another in perfect peace and harmony. May we draw on this prophetic blessing and use our individual and collective efforts to increase unity in the world. I leave my testimony in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ's humble, timeless prayer, that they all may be one, as Thou, Father, art in me and I in Thee, that they also may be one in us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Overcoming Racism Through Kindness, Unity, and the Savior, with thoughts from Elder Joseph B. Worthlin, Sister Sharon Eubank, and Ryan Gabriel. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.